Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer. I'm joined today by my colleagues, Travis Fisher and Rachel Wilfong. Now here at the top, I want to remind everyone once again about the Power Hours email account. Now, Travis, I know this is your favorite part. Yeah, I don't. Please tell us what that email address is. I don't know is. how this became my thing, but I'm just going to go with it. I just do whatever Jack tells me to do. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. And we will read your emails, and we'll take them into account, and we'll try to cover the topics that you guys want us to cover. First of all, um, we do more than take it into account. We read it, take it seriously, and unless it's some sort of, no, even if it's a conspiracy theory, we will respond to it in okay. one way or another, if you're okay with that. No, I'm good with it. Okay. We Actually, will respond and, to I, and I do have one that we'll talk about a bit later. But Very yeah. good. So the bottom line is, let us know what you're thinking. Do you like what we're doing? Can we improve? Let us know if we can improve. We want to provide you the best show that we can. So let us know. Write it down. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. Now, Rachel, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Jack? I'm all right. I'm hanging in there. It's a busy week, but I'm well, and I'm glad you're doing well. Travis, we've already heard from you, but I want to hear specifically. How are you today? I'm doing great. Very good. I'm not as full of energy as usual. We had a stomach bug over the weekend, whole family. But I am I am okay. Right. I am alive. It's hard to kill me. I'll be all right. Well, keep that stomach bug to yourself, and let's power through. Now, we've advertised ourselves as a podcast that covers the full spectrum of energy environment issues, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't know that we've actually lived up to that to that promise. Now, I love nuclear power. And of our seven episodes, we've done that <laughs> twice. Now, Travis, you're a big electricity guy. That's right. So it's not just me. We've done electricity-focused things twice. Yeah. Now, Rachel, we're going to depend on you. It's up to you to help round things out. What I need to know is what kind of person are you? I'm a big natural gas, conventional fuels girl. <laughs> All right. Really? Really? Well, today's your lucky day because guess what we're going to talk about? Tell me it's natural gas. And? Oil. You got it. That's right, folks. We spent a lot of time about talking about what is possible with things like nuclear power and how bad policy will make our energy and environment lives worse. But today, we're going to focus on what is. And what is? I'll tell you what is. Oil and natural gas is what makes all our lives better, and will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. Now, before we get into it, let's talk some numbers. Travis, I want to know from you, what percentage of global energy consumption do you think is made of hydrocarbons? So if you throw in coal as well as natural gas and oil, it's, the whole shebang. it's been 80-ish percent for a very long time. You're good, man. I didn't tell you this before. No, you just knew th no that. This is, you, you never give me any prep. I'm just, I'm, I'm spitballing here. <laughs> All right. Rachel, I got one for you. Okay. So now you know that we use oil, natural gas to heat our homes, fuel our cars. And as I know you know, because you've worked on this issue, cook our food. That's right. But can you guess, just an estimate, just spitballing, how many consumer products rely on hydrocarbons? I would guess in a similar round to what Travis threw out there, maybe in the the 80s? No, I'm, I need a number. What number of things? Oh, what number of, of consumer, of consumer products? products? I thought you said how percentage. How far up the supply of... chain are we talking here? The whole way. Consumer products. Because almost so everything things... gets delivered by, you know, diesel truck or something, so. No, when you go to a store, the things that you purchase. Yeah. Rely on hydrocarbons. If That's what I'm if asking. If it's made of plastic or includes paint or anything like What's that. your name, Rachel? You got the answer. Yours, Rachel. <laughs> My name is not Rachel. I'm sorry. Um, hundreds of millions. <laughs> no, not hundreds of millions, but six thousand, according to our Department of Energy. So we are talking crayons, tents, lipstick, cell phones, floor wax, movie film, 
Refrigerants. Did I miss eyeglasses? Medicine. And fishing boats? Because those are included. And just for fun, let's throw in wind turbine blades and solar panels. Mm. The point is, regardless of what certain people in Washington say, oil and natural gas is not just something that we should be ashamed of, but it's something we should celebrate. Now, judging by how gas and oil are portrayed in the media, you'd think we'd have a hard time finding someone to join us in our hydrocarbon celebration. Luckily, we happen to know just the right person. Our guest today has made a career of ensuring that Americans have access to the fuel products that they need and that they are available at reasonable prices. As the world of energy policy seems to be slipping further and further from reality, she speaks from a position of logic and reason. Our guest today is Kathleen Skagma. <laughs> nope. I Try again. <laughs> Our guest today is Kathleen Sk- I, f- I forget. Skagma. Skagma. Skagma? Skagma, right? Skagma. All right. Oh, boy. We're going to get this right. Our guest right. today <laughs> is Kathleen Skagma, president of the Western Energy Alliance. Now, for those of you that don't know, The Western Energy Alliance is a great organization. It represents 200 companies that are engaged in all aspects of environmentally responsible exploration and production of oil and natural gas in the American West. Kathleen, welcome to the Power Hour. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be joining in the celebration of hydrocarbons. (laughs) Very good. We knew that you would appreciate that. Um, Now, we have a ton to cover today and only about 15 minutes to do it. So let's dive right in. What we like to start off with is to learn more about you and the organization. So could you tell us a little bit about the Western Energy Alliance? What do you all do? Yeah, we advocate on behalf of the oil and natural gas industry in the Rocky Mountain West. So we focus on federal issues. So you can't blame me for the dumpster fire that is going on in Colorado when it comes to oil and natural gas, because other organizations have to deal with all the regulations coming out of Colorado, but we are based in Denver, um, but we do focus on those federal issues, public lands issues, air quality, water quality. Um, You know, we bring a regional perspective to Washington, D.C. on energy and environment topics. God knows they could use it. If they could take just a little bit more of a regional and site-specific approach, that sure would make their, uh, their impact far less onerous. One of the things I found interesting in reading on the, the, the Alliance's website is your, your focus on environmental responsibility and how you focus on energy development, but within, but within a, an eye on environmental responsibility. Could you talk us through that? Like, what does that mean from a hydrocarbon perspective? You know, every legitimate environmental challenge we have met and exceeded. So when uh, people were concerned about the impact on the land, what did we do? We developed horizontal drilling and directional drilling, and now we cluster 30, sometimes up to 60 or even 80 wells on a pad. Those are kind of extreme cases. Generally, you know, your horizontal well pad has eight wells on the pad. Can Um, I ask ask you a, a, a quick question? Sure. One of the things we try to do here, and we'll get more into this, but to provide basics for our listeners. And so you used a term there that I think folks would benefit from getting a definition for, which you said pad. What what do you mean when you say pad? And like, how big is a drilling pad? Well, it depends on how many wells you put on it. So if in the past we would develop, and, and I'm talking 15, 20 years ago, a vertical well and earlier, of course, Uh, a vertical well, and your well pad might have been five acres, and you drill one straw down vertically into the ground, and you'd hit a small region underground, and you would develop oil and natural gas out of it. Now, we drill on a well pad, and we drill down a couple miles, and then we drill two to three miles laterally underneath, so we're hitting all along the hydrocarbon zone uh, that that formation. And so each horizontal well in and of itself, it equates to several vertical wells. Um, and so we develop more from a well than we used to in the past. 
the the well pad is smaller relative to how much uh, uh, how much hydrocarbons we're producing, and uh, because and then even with that, even though we're producing more per well, we're going to cluster a 12, 16 horizontal wells on a single pad. So we continue to reduce the footprint on the land. And so horizontal and directional drilling have enabled us to reduce the footprint on the land by 70%. Now, you asked about specifically how big is a well pad. Um, in general, you start out drilling a well, and if it's that vertical well I was talking about, rough rule of thumb, you call that five acres when you talk about the well pad, and maybe you had to uh, put in an extension to a road up to that well pad. So you'd say about five acres. But now when we have uh, eight wells on a pad, say, or 12 wells on a pad, maybe that pad is a bit bigger because you're, mm -hmm. you know, you just have more wells and equipment that come on that pad. Um, so it might be 20 acres, but, you know, per well, that acreage is much less than five acres, obviously. So it, it depends. It's not a one-to-one. -one. It depends on your topography. It depends how many wells you're putting on. It depends on how you're getting that equipment in. Um, but once all the wells are drilled on a well pad, we do interim reclamation and we shrink that well pad down to the size that's needed just for uh, maintenance and uh, hauling off water or oil or you know just general maintenance of that pad. So that maybe that 20 acre pad shrinks down a bit uh, smaller to just what's needed to service that well. This is going to be a dumb question, but I can't help myself. When you say pad, what is that a geographical designation or is it like a... It's just a site yeah. where your well is located, right? Right. So when you go to develop a well, you need to create a well pad that is, uh, you know, a surface... You know, maybe you have to um, shave off some of the dirt, you know, move bulldoze some of the dirt so that it's a level well pad because mm -hmm. you're bringing in trucks and frack equipment, et cetera, onto that well pad. So you mm -hmm. need a nice flat surface um, and, you know, you just need a little real estate to put all the well equipment. So it's, it's basically the work area. It's the yes. area in which this yes. all happens. Okay. Yes, it's a well site. Mm -hmm. Now, I rudely interrupted you um, when you were talking about sort of how the alliance goes about its it, uh, being uh, its production in an environment, keeping an eye on environmental responsibility. Could you just talk us through that a little bit? And I promise I won't interrupt you this time. Well, I you know, that's part of a dialogue is is um, back and forth. So no problem at all. So as I was saying, we've met every legitimate environmental challenge. So. One we've talked about is reducing the footprint on the well pad. Another one is water usage. Um, a few years back, people would rightly brought up the issue that um, fracking takes fresh water. And of course, we want to reduce the amount of fresh water we use, A, because it's expensive to purchase fresh water. We don't own the water rights, so we have to purchase it. But B, it's just the right thing to do. The less water we use, obviously, is a better thing. So we do um, a lot of water reuse. Um, we produce water from any kind of hydrocarbon formation because, you know, when the dinosaurs died off and, and started to make oil and natural gas many millions of years ago, um, there were also oceans over uh, most of the Rocky Mountain West, really all of the Rocky Mountain West. And so there's a lot of ancient seawater trapped under the ground there, and that comes out when we produce. So we try to, you know, reuse that water, clean it up. Um, the frack water, we try to clean up and reuse. The more we can reuse water, the less fresh water we have, and that's better for the environment. It's, you know, cheaper for us. It's just good all the way around. Another area where we constantly improve is reducing emissions all kinds of different emissions. We produce much more oil and natural gas and uh, our emissions both absolutely and per unit of production have gone down significantly over many, many years um, from the uh, standard uh, emissions 
such as the precursors to ozone, you know, VOC, volatile organic compounds and, and NOx and such, to methane, for example. Uh, methane is one of those areas that people like to try to say, well, we can't have any oil and natural gas because there is some methane that is produced and leaked off. Well, you know, we have a three decade long record of continually reducing methane emissions. I forget the exact numbers, but it's around 20. We've reduced emissions by about 20 percent since 1990, even as our natural gas production has increased by something like 70 percent. And I think we've, uh, you know, and likewise with oil, we're producing so much more oil and natural gas in the United States, yet our methane emissions have gone down about 20 percent uh, since 1990. So that's a reduction absolutely and per unit of production. And we continue to drive those emissions down. So that's what I mean by, you know, we as an industry are constantly innovating. We are addressing any legitimate environmental issue. And I, I, I stress legitimate because there are a lot of people that try to throw all kinds of accusations against oil and natural gas. And they make all kind, you know, we're polluting and damaging the land and raping and pillaging. Well, it's just not true. We work very hard to make sure we have as light of a footprint on the land. And it, it's, it's, it's necessary to understand that any type of human activity has some impact on the land, whether you're putting up a, a wind turbine, uh, solar panels, or an oil and gas well. Um, the, the key is to make sure that we minimize that impact on the land and that we constantly innovate to reduce any impact. One of the things that we like to do for audiences, as I mentioned earlier, is sort of lay a, a basic foundation for folks so that they can understand the issue broadly. Then we'll get into some specific policy issues. I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the gas and oil industry just generally. Um, like, how does it work? How, how, who gets the gas and oil out of the ground? Then, like, who do they send it to? Um, how does it get from, you know, under the earth in the, in the Western states to our gas tanks or, as we were saying earlier, our lipstick? Like, how, what's that sort of process there? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of one of those industries that stays under the radar screen as far as what we do. Now, I don't think we're under the radar screen for being targeted uh, negatively, but as far as people understanding what we do, um, I don't think people understand that there are literally thousands of companies from ExxonMobil on down to mom and pop oil and natural gas producers that drill maybe one well a year. So there are all kinds of different companies involved in the oil and gas industry. So Western Energy Alliance represents what's called the upstream industry. So we re represent the producer at the wellhead. So we deal with those issues at the well pad. But um, we so you have companies that are called operators or producers, and they're responsible for putting everything together, bringing, um, you know, getting the permitting, because there are tons of different permits you need before you can drill a well. Um, but they acquire leases that give them the right to operate in a certain area. They determine a plan for how many wells, how much, you know, they do the, the geo, um, the geoscience to determine initially what well, we think this area is a good place to drill some wells. So we're going to do some analysis on that. And then we're going to put the funding together and then we're going to hire a drilling company um, that's going to come in and actually drill the well. And then we're going to hire various service contractors that will come in and frack the well. And I can get into what fracking is in a minute. Um, we're going to hire different companies to bulldoze the well pad like we talked about. So the operator or the producer contracts all kinds of different companies from large companies to mostly small companies to come in, drill the well, complete it with fracking, um, get the production equipment up and running, and then that well is producing. And a well will produce generally about 30 years or more. I mean, we had, there are still active wells in the West from the early 1900s, for example. And are they pumping oil out all the time, like a constant? It depends. Older wells, they might turn on that pump jack uh, for only a few hours a day mm -hmm. um, because it's a low-producing well. So after, 
after the first couple of years, your well is going to decline. It's going to produce less and less over time. But as it goes into that 30, 40 year lifespan, it, you know, the, the production tapers off over time. So your lower producing wells may be just, you know, they may just have that stimulation only uh, that pump jack or there are other types of um, lift they might only get that, you know, for a few hours a day. But generally, a new well is going to be producing fairly constantly. But once that well, you know, once the, the oil or natural gas comes to the surface, it's separated out and then um, put into a pipeline that the natural gas is put into a pipeline. Um, generally, your oil is collected in a tank and then, you know, haulers come off and take that tank. You know, if you've got a hookup to a oil pipeline, that's great, but generally it's going to be hauled off. Um, and then it's taken through a, what's called the midstream company. And that's that pipeline company or, uh, you know, that pipeline company is going to then take it off and get it to, in the case of oil, to the refinery. Um, in the case of natural gas, it's going um, down the pipe to eventually what we call the downstream sector of the industry. And that's where you buy that gasoline at the you know, once it comes from the refinery, it gets to the gas station, you buy it at the pump, or in the case of natural gas, you get it to deliver to your home for cooking or heating, etc. You know, a lot of natural gas also goes into electricity generation, and that's also transported by pipeline to the power plant. Now, you mentioned fracking. I definitely want to get into fracking, but where you left that last description leads me to another question that I want to get to. Then we'll come back to fracking. Um how are costs determined? Like, how is the price at the pump determined or electricity? Um, should I be mad at gas stations about my high oil prices or big oil or Biden or the Russians or someone else completely? Like, who can I get mad at that my oil, my gas prices are too high? Yeah, you know, it's hard to get mad at a, an amorphous market, but that is indeed the case. So the price at the pump is generally very much set by majority is the cost, the global cost of oil. So there's a price of oil that fluctuates according to the global market. So you can get mad at OPEC generally for that. Although um, when we <laughs> All right, were, I can do that. Yeah. When we were energy independent a few years ago as a net exporter, the United States, um, the American producer was really picking up the slack and, and OPEC was fairly irrelevant for a few years because the American producer was just when when there was more demand globally, we would just meet that demand. Well, um, I wasn't mad about my gas prices then. Right. Because I, I was exactly. only paying a buck seventy five. Right. Because because so the American worked. producer was able to just fill that demand and keep global prices low. But um, aside from the global price of oil, there's marketing to get that oil from the well pad, as we just described, from the well pad to the um, gas station. That's probably about 15% maybe of the cost, and that's, um, you know, various costs in that, that distribution and marketing and, and getting it to the consumer. And then um, there's a lot of tax in your price of gasoline. Oh, more, so I can be mad at the government. Yes. More so All right. All right. More so if you're in California, Hawaii, Nevada, for example, um, than if you're in, say, Wyoming or Oklahoma, your, ta your tax is going to be lower. But there's some tax there. And um, then, you know, there is some discretion of the, um, the, the gas station owner, as there should be. You know, they're the ones that are um, ultimately selling it to them. But that's a very small percentage. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the in, in to take a serious tone for a moment, um, one of the frustrating things for me as I watch politicians and special interests talk about these things is their narrative that the gas station owners and the big oil companies can just like sell gas for whatever they want, and whenever prices go up, it's just because they want to increase profits. As if that you know, if that were the case, of course, gas would always be eight dollars a gallon. Um, and there's such a lack of recognition amongst policymakers uh, about what actually drives prices and, more importantly, how the things that they do actually have far more impact on prices than any decision that, that, that's made at Shell Corporation or um, at the Shell gas station. Right, because if Shell was, you know, trying to set prices too high, well, Chevron is going to undercut them, Right. 
So what what is a little bit frustrating is there's this, you know, for a capitalistic free market country, you would think, there's this overall suspicion of markets in uh, of, amongst various members of the populace. And, you know, a market is just thousands of different people making decisions on what to buy and what to sell. And uh, really, the market is really good at mediating between a scarce resource. So I think that's sometimes forgotten. And this this kind of knee-jerk anti-company type of rhetoric, I think is also not helpful. I mean, you know, there are thousands and thousands of companies and just like there are millions of people and there are some of those people are in jail, you know, there are some bad actors. But in general, um, companies have uh, very strict regulations they follow. They have financial um, constraints that they need to stick to. They've got the market discipline, which is if they try to set prices too high, well, then they're undercut by someone else. So really, when it comes to oil and natural gas, the, the price is really set by a global commodity price. We are price takers, not price makers. Um, you know, it's interesting. Everyone's, well, first of all, the politicians never seem concerned when the price of uh, the uh, price of a barrel of oil is really low, like when it went negative in 2020. They never seem to be, you know, be caring that it's low then. Right. It only is, you know, we're only setting prices when it's high, right? Well, all of the times these politicians rail against big oil or, you know, companies, um, then they do they do sick the uh, Federal uh, Trade Commission on the industry. And there have been f- about 50 different reports um, set off by politicians claiming, you know, pointing a finger at us. I think in the last 20 years, don't quote me exactly on that, but about 50 different times the FTC has looked at whether there was price collusion or unfair trade practices, and they have never come up with a single example where gasoline prices were caused by collusion or unfair trade practices. Yeah, it's the uh, it's one of the the go-to options in the uh, politicians' playbook to present themselves as doing something to bring down gas and oil prices. Um, it's 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 always pathetic. The whole their whole uh, their their whole agenda is pathetic. They do that. They do the whole SPR uh, strategic petroleum reserve song and dance. They do the whole um, blaming profits um, when, in fact, if they would just allow you all to do your job, they wouldn't have to go grovel to uh, Venezuela and OPEC. I guess Venezuela's part of it. Uh, Venezuela and Saudi Arabia to please increase production. The whole thing is just, just, just pathetic. And, and um, right, and, and don't forget that our president went and groveled to Russia before Russia invaded Ukraine to increase its production. Look, you know, he could have just come to Texas and Colorado and New Mexico, and we would have been happy to increase production if he weren't trying to uh, stymie us at every turn. You know, and the thing is, when we go to other countries and ask for them to increase their production, other than Canada, um, the United States and Canada um, produce the most environmentally friendly oil and natural gas in the world. So when we have to import it from Venezuela, the environmental impact is higher. Uh, the greenhouse gas emissions are higher because they don't, you know, they're not trying to reduce their emissions like we are. It has to be transported in from overseas. So, you know, it's just, um, it, it just doesn't really achieve any goal because in the absence of a substance that does everything that oil and natural gas do, and this imaginary energy source hasn't been invented yet, then when we constrain production here in the United States, all that means is we have to import it from overseas. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, um, and it's so unnecessary. It's so costly and so unnecessary. It leaves Americans in America in a worse off position for absolutely no benefit. Yeah, absolutely no benefit. You know, we also get um, blamed for, you know, natural gas uh, is blamed a lot. But if you look at it, natural gas has done more to decrease United States greenhouse gas emissions than any other energy source. We, according to energy, uh, the Department of Energy data, the Energy Information Administration, we have reduced more emissions than wind and solar combined. 
And that's not for lack of trying on the part of the government, but just for the fact that natural gas provides electricity that's actually 24-7. So um, because our profile is a lower carbon, um, you know, it's a clean energy source, uh, we are, and, and it's 24-7, we've done more than all of the subsidized wind and solar combined. And because that's where the market took you, not because some government bureaucrat, special interest or politician told you that's what you're supposed to do, which is one of the most interesting aspects of that whole, um, that whole story. Yes, right. I mean, they've been, they would love to get rid of natural gas, but I think even, uh, even the most lefty politician, well, not the most lefty, but um, most, a lot of politicians would like to get rid of natural gas, but they also like to have their um, voters happy. And voters are not happy when they have blackouts or you know rolling brownouts or when their gasoline prices are high. So at some point, uh, despite all the hue and cry from politicians, um, that reality does set in. And you see that in Germany, you see that in California, you see that uh, even though they won't admit it, um, and people continue to say, oh, we need, to, we need to invest more in renewables. We need to invest more in renewables. Well, you know, Germany tried that and they're, they're burning more coal for electricity generation because they simultaneously killed off uh, their nuclear power. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, burning coal. No, there's not. <laughs> but if your goal is to, you know, is to invest, uh, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollars in wind and solar, and then the result is you've got a lot of wind and solar that doesn't produce much, but you know, you've got to have coal to back it up because you no longer have natural gas from Russia. It make it makes one wonder what one's goal might actually what one's actual goal might be, because um, we know that uh, that that what they are saying they're trying to achieve is not what they're achieving. What they are achieving is gaining more and more control over the economy and over our lives. Absolutely. Because if they really wanted to, um, you know, have a non-carbon source of electricity, they would install more nuclear, not shut it down like Germany did. Right. Um, now, one of the things I, I want to, I still want to talk about fracking, because I know a lot of folks would like to hear details about that. But as, since we're talking about gas and oil markets generally, um, I wanted to bring this topic up. One of the things that the anti-gas and oil folks will talk about, and even I think 15 to 20 years ago, conservatives were talking about this um, idea of peak oil, that we're going to run out of it, so let's um, we need to transition to something else. And I wonder if you could talk to us, Kathleen, about how much oil and natural gas do we have? Like, do we have enough to rely on? Like, or Or, or are we going to run out and therefore... We need wind and solar and the government to to step in. What are what, what's your thought on on that whole notion? I don't have reserve numbers off the top of my head. However, um, we have decades and decades of oil and natural gas. The thing is, the more we develop, the the way you prove up your reserves is developing more oil or gas wells. Um, so the more you develop the more you um, find more oil and natural gas. We can't book reserves until, uh, it's very strict on when we can book reserves. So there's a number on reserves and it takes us out a hundred years or whatever it is. Um, but the more we develop, the more we keep pushing that timeline off into the future. So I think that was one of the mistakes that peak oil people made was they would look at a point in time of how much um, oil we had. And, it, you know, they weren't considering that we keep finding more as we develop. Another thing they totally missed was the shale revolution. So um, about um, now, it's probably about 20 years ago, um, the shale revolution really started to take off, maybe, maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, it used to be that in order to produce oil and natural gas, you'd have to find a conventional resource of that. And Saudi Arabia has conventional oil resources, uh, many parts of Texas, the Gulf of Mexico. And the analogy is 
um, you could pretty much in those areas in the right spot, you could stick that straw into the ground and the oil would flow out of that, um, that formation. And there were certain geological conditions that led to basically a pool of oil under the ground that was pretty easy to develop. Um, so what happens really quickly is you have a source rock, which is where those dinosaurs and other organic material were compacted into many millions of years ago. And um, that source rock would over time migrate into, uh, start to flow up, up through other layers of rock into an area where it was capped and you could stick that well, you could stick that straw into the ground and it was capped in such a way that it would just flow. Well, now with fracking, we go right to the source rock. We don't have to have those special geological conditions where you know it, had, it pools in a specific types of formation. So we can go right to the source rock and we, we stick that straw, we stick that well into that source rock. And then we go two or three miles out through that source rock, but the oil or natural gas doesn't flow naturally. It has to be fracked. And um, hydraulic fracturing is a type of uh, completion process to stimulate the flow of that oil or natural gas out of that really dense source rock. So what we do is under high pressure, we, um, we have a frac fluid that under high pressure, it gets jammed down into that source rock and creates these micro fissures in the rock so that the oil or natural gas can flow into the well bore and up into the well. So we don't have to find, so any, we can go pretty much anywhere there's a basin between, you know, mountains, um, anywhere there's a basin in that source rock, that shale generally, but there are different types of rocks as well besides just shale, but we call it, you know, we, we, we focus on the shales. Um, and we can just stick that well in there, frack it, and it will flow. So in the Rocky Mountain West, pretty much 100% of our wells are fracked. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of what fracking is really quickly. So I have a question about that. So when you do the drilling, how much is, because I've heard of this concept of the, the frack log, which is basically a backlog of projects that have either been, you know, explored to some extent or drilled, and you, you haven't quite done the hydraulic fracturing bit yet. Um, and this is a concept that I'm always curious about because we're sort of seen as the swing producer. So when global oil prices rise, there are a lot of folks who want to jump in and, and you know, earn those prices. How exactly does that work and how fast is that process going from, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a pad that's already drilled to then fracking it and and having the, the oil actually come out of the ground? How, how fast of a turnaround is that? Well, it, it really depends. So, you know, we call those ducks actually drilled and uncompleted well. So it just depends on the ebb and flow of the industry over time. So there are, um, it's really expensive to hire a frac crew. It's really expensive to hire a, a, a rig, a drilling rig. So, um, and we're really efficient now. So once you've hired a a rig, well, first you have to get all your permits, but once you've got your permits in line and you've got a plan, you get a rig out into the field and you can drill uh, a horizontal well in a matter of days, it, you know, not months, it's days to a few weeks for each of those wells. And so those rigs can pump out a bunch of wells in a fairly short period of time. Um, it depends on your plan of development. Sometimes you you have that drill rig on and you're fracking. You know, you finish one well and you immediately frack it. Other times, you know, you've got that rig and you pump out a bunch of different wells or, you know, drill, I shouldn't say pump, but, you know, boom, 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 you're using that rig, the rig moves off, off but maybe you haven't contracted or you're waiting on a frack crew, just the ebb and flow of when those frack crews might be available. Um, so your your well might stay uncompleted for a, sh uh, a short period of time until you can bring that well on, or it might be longer. Maybe you drilled a bunch of wells, but the market changes from the time you started your project. Maybe prices went down like they tanked in May of 2020 when prices literally went negative. So not, a, not only were we not completing and drilling a whole bunch of new wells, but we actually ended, ended up having to shut in uh, many different wells. 
Um, you know, it just depends on the ebb and flow of the market. It depends on your ability to bring in crews, which has been difficult. You know, we, we suffered from the same supply chain difficulties that the entire economy does, though, though that seems to be straightening out. So it just really depends um, when you have thousands of different companies developing. Um, there's it's just a it's it's a market, right? There's that ebb and flow. So just to Depending on where conditions are, there are more ducks or less, and that comes and goes. It sounds like there are fewer ducks than than I thought. But I, I, I do have a question, too, about, so May of 2020, crude oil futures went negative. Most of the people that I know in the oil industry were basically panicking. Most of the majors had to lay off a significant chunk of their workforce. It was, in general, just a bad time. But then the question is, for all these people who come out of the woodwork when prices are exceptionally high and say, oh, this is oil company greed. What is their explanation for when crude futures went negative? Because is that was that a momentary lapse in greed? Everybody just got incredibly ungreedy for about a month? <laughs> no, that's because uh, demand tanked when uh, COVID lockdowns were happening. So demand just completely tanked. Nobody was going anywhere. Nobody was flying anywhere. And um, the price of oil did go negative for some, t uh, it was a fairly short period of time, but prices were low for a long time. And uh, literally when prices go negative, you cannot find place to store a barrel of oil. So we had to, uh, you'd have to pay, some, like that means you had to pay somebody to take away your oil as opposed to getting paid for your oil. So we ended up having to shut in quite a bit of production. And certainly there wasn't a lot of new production going on at that time. So I have a question, Kathleen, kind of about, you know, you hear, obviously we're sitting here talking about all, you know, everything that fracking does and helps with, with this industry, but obviously there are a ton of people on the other side of the argument who just highlight all these negative things associated with fracking, right? So you hear about how fracking causes earthquakes, water contamination, um, claims that you're kitchen faucet is going to catch on fire. So can you talk a little bit about the that side of, of the argument here and kind of maybe discount some of, some of those claims? Well, I mean, Rachel, you are so early 2010s, really, because <laughs> the, the, the enviros have so moved off of fracking and they're really focusing on methane these days. I, I kind of say methane is the new fracking because they tried really hard from about the mid 2000s to, I don't know, 2015 or so, um, to make fracking into this really scary process because it used some chemicals and it involves oil and natural gas. And um, so they, Sierra Club actually embarked on a campaign specifically, and they were funded actually um, with some Russian money because Russia doesn't like the competition from the American producer. Um, so a lot of environmental company or organizations were funded by Russia to, to, to make fracking seem scary. And they convinced France and Germany not to frack. They, they convinced the UK not to frack, although the UK has backed off on that a bit. So they tried to make it really scary. Um, our industry was caught a little flat-footed by that because it's kind of like, well, we've been fracking for decades. It's kind of a boring engineering process, but okay. And then when we finally started to engage and try to explain why um, fracking is necessary and how it's regulated and how it's managed to make sure we minimize the impact um, from fracking, like I was talking about earlier, using less water in fracking, um, we produce more oil and natural gas. And really, we produce more oil and natural gas per barrel of, of water used as well. So, you know, I, it kind of fell flat over time because the shale revolution started to happen. And we became uh, a net, uh, not only the number one oil and natural gas producer in the world, uh, and we still retain that um, ranking. But you know, I think Americans realized, okay, you know, you tried to scare me, environmental lobby, about fracking, but um, the more I learn about it, the more I see how it's regulated, how it's managed, and, you know, it, it, there's a balance. We'd rather produce it here than bring it in from overseas. So I think we kind of managed to get past that. Now, that's not to say you can't um, Google fracking because no bad information ever goes away, right? A lot of those 
studies claiming fracking was, you know, harming the environment were debunked, um, but you could still find really bad uh, research and quotes out there. Um, you know, it just never goes away. That story of about the faucets on fire, um, that was naturally, there's naturally occurring methane in um, certain aquifers. And um, at the time when there was a movie, there was a propaganda movie against fracking that came out. And even the Colorado, uh, it, that, that incident happened in Colorado. And the, the Colorado um, Oil and Gas Commission came out and said, hey, we've known that this area has methane in the water. It's naturally occurring. Uh, you could do that before any wells were fracked in the area. So that type of misinformation, I think we wrote out. Now it's really all, um, you know, the environmental lobby tries to use the methane and climate change as a reason to stop oil and natural gas. But again, in the absence of any of another energy source that can do everything that oil and natural gas do, um, you know, we're going to use it because it's so much, it provides humanity with such a huge benefit compared to the um, the cost and the impact that it does have. All right, Kathleen, I agree with everything you say. I've said so far, but I got to push back just a skosh on this idea that Rachel's stuck in 2010. She may well be, but not her thing for this reason. Um, we hear, we still hear these arguments and we still see New York not fracking and these, those European countries that were scared away by anti-fracking propaganda remain other than Britain backing off a little bit still are in that in that place so though these arguments are old and um, have been disproven I agree with all that but I feel like they're still lingering around a little yeah, bit yeah, like I, I said no bad information ever dies um, you know it's still around to some extent but honestly um, I think if you look at what I mean I'm I'm not a technical expert in the industry. I'm a I'm a, an advocate, right? I deal with um, energy policy and regulatory policy. So when I look at what the Biden administration is trying to use to regulate mm -hmm. us out of existence, it it's greenhouse gases fracking. and methane, no. It ain't right. fracking at all. They're not even trying to do enough. We managed to stop federal regulate. Western Energy Alliance and the Independent Petroleum Association of America managed to stop federal regulation of fracking through a lawsuit. That, so that was Little Oil. We represent independent producers, both of our organizations. It was Little Oil, not Big Oil, that came in and stopped that regulation because it's properly done at the state level. It has been done at the state level. And, um, you know, that was at the end of the Obama administration where we had overturned the Obama rule. And um, now the Biden administration has come in and it's resurrected what it's wanted to from the overturned Obama agenda. And fracking is not one of those things. It's mm -hmm. all climate change all the time. The Biden administration has an all of government approach to climate change, making everything about climate change from every different agency, whether it's a EPA and the Department of Interior, which are traditionally the agencies that we worry about as producers. Um, now it's every agency, whether it's the Department of Labor, um, federal uh, financial regulations coming out of the Securities and Exchange Commission, you name it, it's about climate change. And the, the case they're trying to make is because, I mean, duh, oil and natural gas produce greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, that's one of, you know, when you burn these products, they do, that's the nature, their chemical nature, they do put off um, greenhouse gas emissions. But the, um, the, what the environmental lobby is doing is trying to say that any greenhouse gas emissions mean it's all bad. And they're not looking at a balanced look at, well, yeah, greenhouse gas emissions are produced. How do we reduce those? Well, we use more natural gas because it has less carbon than coal and oil. Um, but we also... Uh, need to look at the fact that until there's something that does everything that oil, natural gas, and coal do, the benefits to humanity are so much greater than the costs. Uh, Kathleen, I'd love to jump in on, on that because as you were mentioning, um, we're seeing the government do this through through regulations. And we're not just talking about you know bans on fracking or anything like that, but we're talking about actually 
changing the products that consumers use. And I know that you have done some work on this um, DOE proposed regulation um, that just closed. So can you talk a little bit about how these regulations, um, especially when it comes to consumer products like the most recent DOE one um, on energy efficiency standards for cooktops, how this actually really impacts consumers? Um, Because one thing that I think that you also have mentioned here is that it's all under the banner of climate change, right? That that by protecting the environment, it protects people's health and wellness, and and that supersedes anything um, anything else. And one thing that I think is getting neglected here is actually how this contributes to this whole notion of, of energy poverty and, and affecting people's lives and livelihoods. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this... All of government approach to uh, climate change is really quite pernicious if you look at what the effects could be. Um, you mentioned em- energy pol- poverty, carbon budgets. You know, you only, you individual citizen, you only get to use so much energy. We're seeing um, uh, Europe so much further down the road than we are. Um, we have the opportunity or the ability in the United States not to follow them down that path as much. But this um, notion of let's electrify everything is born on this totally false notion that you could electrify everything um, from vehicles to, um, you know, your cooktop, just everything is going to be electrified. And then it's going to be somehow more environmentally friendly. Well, you know, where does electricity come from? Well, about 40% is natural gas. About 22 to 25% is coal. Um, I forget the exact percentage of nuclear you all might know. 20%. Yeah. Okay. And then hydro is what? 8% or something. Like, most of our electricity is coming from coal and natural gas. And so we would need a lot more coal and natural gas because, you know, this notion that you can just turn on wind and solar and battery storage, it's not, it's not technically, thermodynamically, economically possible with today's wind, solar and battery technology. It would just take too much money and not, it's just not realistic and take too much critical minerals that, you know, mining would have to increase dramatically. So this electrify everything is trying to push, you know, consumers off of gas stoves, for example. Um, Well, you know, besides the obvious that natural gas is so much more preferable to cook on than, uh, you know, a smooth electric cooktop. um, It's just, it's, it's more, it's actually, I think, more environmentally friendly to use a, you know, a gas stove and to use, um, you know, home heating from natural gas directly, because rather than taking the line loss and the loss at the power plant, because there's loss, you know, there's um, energy loss in both of that, getting it to the consumer. Whereas when you're just piping it in natural gas, the line loss, you know, the, the, the processing loss is so much less. So um, you're burning a clean fuel source right at your home, and it's, it's actually more environmentally friendly and more efficient. So this, I, I don't know, this electrify everything is, is kind of a, a bizarre concept to me because ultimately it's going to increase, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to increase the natural gas and coal electricity generation. Right. I agree. And I'm curious to know, I know you said that you don't deal so much with, with state-based uh, regulations, um, but obviously this this court uh, case in, in California just came out overturning Berkeley, California's gas, gas ban. Do you think that that decision might have any weight when it comes to these other states, other regions across the country that are considering similar similar bans on natural gas? Well, I think it's going to put a stop to it. The ruling wasn't a state-based rule. It was a federal judge ruling that Berkeley violated a federal statute, the Energy uh, Policy and Conservation Act. And so uh, an an appellate court ruling out of the Ninth Circuit is, is, it's going to stand, you know? (laughs) I'm sorry. So I, I think 
um, I not that I expect it, but all of these other municipalities um, should be overturning their natural gas bans, you know, their ban of, of hookups, because that ruling was pretty darn decisive on a federal statute. So I have a question about, so we, one thing that we like to do is round things out. We I am personally pretty East Coast focused just because that's where I live. But so we're, we're talking to you about the West. I'm curious what thoughts you have on California, because they certainly use a lot of natural gas, especially in electricity generation. And in fact, I don't think they're getting any cleaner in terms of CO2 because they, you know, you can only add so much solar and then they're you're pretty much using gas every day to to firm it up. How are they on the production end? I, it, is this one of those things where they're using a lot of it, importing it, but not allowing the production on, you know, on their own state grounds? Um, California has made it very difficult for California producers. California used to be a major oil and natural gas state. I mean, they're still fairly high on the rankings, but they've been completely overtaken by North Dakota and New Mexico, um, obviously Texas. But um, and it's because they've made it so difficult for their producers. Um, but yeah, you, you know, you're right. It's not like they're driving less. Um, you know, you look at the issue of EVs, for example, or electric vehicles, and governments proclaiming that they're going to be, um, you know, they're going to ban the internal combustion engine and just be EVs by 2030 or 2035, whatever they say. Well, first of all, those politicians aren't going to be in office when that that date comes and goes. Um, but the, I mean, it's a we have a small percentage of EVs in the United States, and it's really projected to climb very slowly because of, of several reasons. Um, I think there's something like 265 million vehicles in the United States and maybe one and a half million are EVs, something like that. I mean, those are kind of um, general ballpark numbers. So to replace all of our transportation, uh, which is our transportation is energized by oil to the tune of 97%. So 97% of all of our transportation, whether it's trucking, um, your personal vehicles, flight, that all comes from oil. So any kind of thought that we're going to replace um, 90, you know, all of our transportation with electricity um, by some kind of year in the future, is, it's a pipe dream. Our electric grids would have to be so much bigger than they are now. We'd have to generate so much more energy from natural gas and coal um, because, you know, again, intermittent renewables can't do everything. They have to be backed up. So it's just a pipe dream. And, and then when you look at the minerals that would have to be mined for all of those electric vehicles, not a realistic energy policy. And in fact, Europe is already providing us the model in this. Europe I think about five years ago, Germany said, oh, yeah, we're going to be all electric vehicles by 2030. And um, the EU followed suit and they just overturned that. They just admitted that it wasn't going to be possible and that, you know, they were going to allow sales of internal combustion engines past that date. You know, reality set in. But now, you know, for some reason, here in the United States, we should be looking at Europe and saying, ah, let's not do that. Let's not spend trillions of dollars for energy that isn't really going to work or dictate solutions like EVs that, you know, fine. If you if somebody wants to purchase an EV, fine. And over time, if that if the market demands it and EVs increase, great. But just for governments to dictate that you can't purchase a gasoline-powered vehicle by some date in the future, re, you know, reality is just going to set in. So we would be wise to look to what happened in Germany and the EU. I agree we would be wise. Unfortunately, this EPA has just announced a new rule, a uh, tailpipe yep. rule that basically says they expect two-thirds of new vehicle sales to be EVs. Yeah. So we're, we're doing it anyways. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I completely disagree not. with that policy. We're not, but because the, the, the courts aren't going to let that happen. These, and, these agencies are so overstepping their, um, their statutory mandates 
Um, so I, I'm, I'm not worried about, like, we're going to spend a lot of time, money, and resources fighting um, stupid policies like that. But there's no way that stands up in court. Right. And there, I see a need for more balance here. So I, I have an economics background. I, I was really, I was intrigued by this quote from Fauci, actually, after the whole, like, hey, what happened? What Everybody's mad about the lockdowns. Like, I see a lot of parallels between yeah. COVID hysteria and climate hysteria. And one thing that I've noticed is nobody bothered on the front end to ask sort of what would be the implications for society, for everyone, if we just shut the the whole economy down. That's exactly what we're talking about on the fossil fuel front. And hardly anybody is zooming out and saying, well, let's let's engage some economists. Let's talk about what impacts this might have in the real world, because you're absolutely right. Reality will hit you in the face. And we saw it with COVID. And I really hope these policies don't go anywhere because we're going to see it again with all this climate stuff. Sorry, Jack, that's that's the dark web version. I'll take off my tinfoil hat now. But I, I do see a lot of parallels. I'm kind of like, guys, we just saw this with COVID. We could be talking to economists now about the, the energy side. But I don't I don't think the EPA wants to hear from me personally. I'm just throwing that out there. And they don't care. If they cared about economics or the societal impact, they wouldn't be going down this road. They care about, I mean, putting, I'm now taking your tinfoil hat, putting it on myself. Nice. And suggesting that they don't care about climate change or gas and oil production or anything other than, as I mentioned earlier, they care about controlling the economy. They care about limiting people's freedom and preserving and expanding their own power. And the best way to do that is to keep us poor and dumb. That's what I'd say. Any thoughts on that, Kathleen? I, I do agree, but I think I'm 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 very optimistic, and because the Supreme Court last year ruled on the major questions doctrine, and they put a very firm line in the sand saying that an agency cannot determine um, some new mission for it, it cannot give itself some brand new mission that Congress didn't give to it. I mean, this is basic three branches of government stuff, but um, you know, agencies have way overstepped their bounds. And the EPA, the National Highway Safety and Traffic Administration, um, all these agencies that are trying to force us all into EVs are going to, they're gonna run smack into uh, this major questions doctrine that the Supreme Court just laid down in West Virginia, the EPA. Now, Kathleen, you must be a, uh, a future seer because I have like a, a loose outline of, of things that I want to make sure I mention. As we were coming to an end, as we are, I have here written, don't forget to ask about your, uh, to look into the future and give us your optimistic perspective. Because despite what I just said, I'm extraordinarily optimistic just because I think that there are politicians and bureaucrats and special interests who want to make America and Americans less free and less prosperous. That doesn't mean I think they will. So I appreciate your helping us end on a much more optimistic um, perspective because it's so easy when talking about these issues <laughs> to not sound optimistic at all. Yeah, it, it is. But I'm always optimistic because reality eventually sets in. And if you make, we saw it when gasoline prices got high, right? Suddenly, even the, the White House and, and Ro Khanna and uh, congressman out of California was saying, hey, producers, why are you producing more? After they had just spent, you know, the previous six months telling us not to produce. Well, and the president said, oh, I'm going to ban your entire yeah, industry right. out of existence. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Why are you producing? Right. And then, you know, when prices got high and they felt the heat from um, consumer, you know, from the voters, then they, you know, they they talked a different tune. Well, when um, everybody's car is starting to get too expensive and they can't heat their homes because energy prices are high, you know what? They're going to vote these politicians out. It might take several cycles, um, but if ultimately reality sets in and people are not going to be, you know, put up with being told what kind of vehicle they can drive and being put on a carbon budget and so they can only heat their homes or air condition their homes to such and such degree. So that always gives me optimism. But the other thing is really the courts are more in balance now than they used to be. Um, thanks mostly to President Trump and um, uh, Senate Minority Leader uh, Mitch McConnell, um, who put in place judges that actually read the law and apply it to 
uh, an agency or the case at hand. So instead of just saying, no, really, I think EVs are good. I'm going to rule for more EVs. Now judges are saying, hey, wait a second. If the agency hasn't been given a mandate to regulate and force us into EVs, for example, or force us to cook on an electric stove, then agency, you can't come up with a regulation. So a lot of these regulations are going to get overturned. Kathleen, thank you so much. We Now, for our listeners, I know we usually do a headline segment. We talk so much good oil and gas stuff. We're going to we're not going to hit that this time. But before we close up, is there anything we missed? Is there anything that we need to talk about to make sure our folks, our listeners, are smart as they can be on these issues? Well, you know, we could probably talk energy for hours and hours, and it's probably best to leave it there because we did hit a lot of different points. <laughs> well, thank you for the, for understand for respecting the name of the show, the Power Hour, not the Powers Hours. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> We went over a couple of minutes, so, so we'll keep it at that. So um, anyway, thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour, not the hours. Please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends, family, and colleagues to check us out. If you didn't, you can tell your enemies. Just either way, we ask that you tell someone. Now, Rachel, one of your roles here is to tell folks where to find us. So where can they find us? That's right. You can find the Power Hour anywhere you get your podcasts. Simply search the Power Hour Heritage to get access to our full episode library. Travis, Rachel, Kathleen, any final words? This is your last chance. Send us an email. Send us an email, please. Thepowerhour at heritage.org. There you go. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Kathleen. Thank we'll see you all next time. Take care.